0: I'm Emmy award-winning TV reporter Mara Schiavocampo, joined by Pulitzer Prize winner Wesley Lowry and former senior magazine editor Keith Reed. Today on Run Tell This, we're joined by Richard Brookshire and Isaiah James from the Black Veterans Project with their reflections on 20 years of war.
1: It was a complete waste of blood and treasure
0: why they think the U.S. stayed in Iraq and Afghanistan for so long, and how that could lead us into future military conflicts.
1: I hope folks understand that another war might be right around the corner.
0: Plus, Wesley Keith and I share our personal reflections on 9-11, before we'd even really begun working as journalists, and how that day has shaped our reporting since. So this year marks 20 years since the terror attacks of 9/11, attacks that changed everything, dividing history into a pre-9/11 world and a post-9/11 world. What? The 737. What? What the world? Who are you talking to? Oh God! Oh my God! But as we look back, we also need to look forward. Did the wars in Iraq and Afghanistan actually accomplish anything? Is the war on terror over even now? Are we any safer today than we were on September 10th, 2001? In a few minutes, we'll be joined by two veterans to get into all of that. But first, the question that a lot of people are asking each other around this uh, 20th anniversary, which is, "Where were you on 9/11?" It it is the defining moment of our time. Um, so I will start with my co-host, um, Keith. We're about the same age, so we were probably roughly in the same space in our life at that time. W- where were you, and what was going on um, in your life on September 11, 2001?
2: What a record! I'm at least 10 years younger than you yeah <laughs> um, no the fact devil check. is alive you
0: fake news fake news for
2: the record i thought we were done with that phrase come on now. <laughs> um, so no on on september 11 2001 i was uh, i was in the business what we call a cup reporter uh, which just basically means you're you're young, you're fresh, you don't you kind of don't know anything, you're you're brand new to a beat. I was on my way to work actually. Uh, I was running late that morning, getting to the newsroom, um, and so I remember going up, getting on an elevator, and hearing about uh, some accident or something that had happened in, in New York. So I get into get into my office, and there was a group of people um gathered around the television in, in the conference room and um just as i kind of walked in and people were, were watching this i had no idea what was going on and i just ran in the conference room with every with everybody else and as i came in that was when the second plane hit um the second plane hit in in new york so um yeah that that and and then everything else just kind of went crazy for there. Um, that, you know, that we were watching. I remember watching Jim Mikliszewski on NBC as the as the third plane, who was in the Pentagon as the third plane hit. I remember frantically, like everybody gets on the phone and they start working, you know, whatever sources you have and kind of trying to localize what, what was going on.
0: I have something to share with you guys um, that I have hanging in my house. So this is the... Uh, New York Times from the day after. This is September 12th. Um, It has a photo of the Twin Towers on fire. And I was a journalism student at the time. I was in graduate school. To this day, in my opinion, this is one of the best written lines covering a story of this magnitude ever. Um, It kept getting worse. Period. And that was the first line uh, on the front page of the New York Times. And I remember reading that And thinking about how clearly that summarized the feeling of that day, because we had no idea what was happening. There were planes falling from the sky. We didn't even know where the planes came from. So initially, you're trying to rationalize, you're trying to make sense. And I was thinking, well, was it a chartered plane? Is it like one of those, you know, single engine planes that fits just the pilot? Where did these planes come from? And I remember the moment of sheer horror in realizing that these were passenger planes. It was a,
2: it was a jet. It was a these whole These were commercial real... that mm-hmm. any
0: one of us could have been on those flights. So now you're layering on the horror of hijacked airplanes. And then you're thinking about all the planes that are in the sky at that moment, and you don't know how many more of them are going to come down. And then the days that followed, how unprecedented everything was. I remember how freaked out I was that there were no commercials on television. It was like the emergency alert system had been activated, and it was either wall-to-wall news or just a graphic saying, there's an emergency, you know, turn into your local news station. It was unsettling and terrifying.
3: You know, so it's no secret, I'm a little bit younger than you guys. Just a and little so bit. So on September 11th. A little
2: bit younger than Mara, <laughs> because me, you are. Yeah, we're about the same, the same age. age. I, went, <laughs> I, went, I went over that already. <laughs> okay. Sorry.
0: Although I was still in school and you were working, but you know. Some, about something like anyway. that. So on September 11th,
3: 2001, I was 11 years old. Um, I, and we lived, before we moved to Cleveland, we lived in North New Jersey. We lived in Burton County. And my dad at the time was working for, he was either a black enterprise or a parent's magazine. So he was in the city. I remember the principal coming in to one of the rooms when the first plane had hit. And it was the same conversation, right? We're basically in suburban New York City. And so everyone's turned the TVs on. And we're all assuming that this was a puddle jumper plane, that you know, some pilot had lost control, something had happened. And so we were all watching. What the second plane hit. Um, and at that point, it started to become very clear. Um, and so for us, you know, at a school like that, uh, you know, a private school in suburban Jersey, almost everyone had a parent who worked in the city. And so it suddenly became this massive attempt at figuring out where everyone's parents were and what was going on. And does anyone who, does anyone work in the Twin Towers, does anyone? And we have to remember, two thousand one. Not very few people had cell phones. Um, you might have had a work cell phone, maybe, but we, we weren't using technology the way we we're using it. And the landlines across the entire tri-state area got shut down completely. Couldn't couldn't reach anybody. So my dad was in a completely different part of Manhattan, and we didn't until he walked in the door, like eight o'clock or nine o'clock or whatnot. To my recollection, we had no idea where he was or what
0: was. You gone. didn't know. If he was okay for hours? To it, the, that's how I remember it. Um, I don't
3: remember my mom being able to get in contact with him. I'm not sure, um, in part because I was so young. But that was how I perceived it. Um, and and so there was just this kind of, but it was just chaos. I had a classmate from when I was younger whose father was in one of the towers and who passed. And, so I, and I knew that. I remembered that my friend from third or fourth grade would always talk about his dad working in the in the World Trade Center. And so I, during all of the um, memorials over the years, I would always look for his father's name. I remember the other weird, weirdest detail I remember is I remember sitting at lunch. And because again, we went to this church school. So there weren't actually a TVs in every room or anything, right? Because it was a church building. And and in the kitchen, the basketball coach was listening to the radio. We weren't supposed to be in there, but a few of us kind of like were in there. And for whatever reason, the thing that like put me into crisis mode or panic mode was when they announced that like Disney world has shut down. <laughs> right. Like they're going through all the things, right. You know, like the, the Sears tower in Chicago has been evacuated and in LA they've shut down the, oh, and down in Orlando, like all the, all the Disney worlds. In, and I was like, Whoa, <laughs> like this. Is, and I don't know. Like, and it's just this like moment of like, useful. But those are markers
0: of normal of normalcy. And so when though that's why the, the television commercials freaked me out, because like, who cares? There are no commercials on TV, but that was a marker for normalcy. So there was no escape from the horror of what was happening. You couldn't watch reruns of your favorite sitcom or a game show or music videos. Of anything There was nothing on except for coverage of this. And what I think made it so impactful, you know, when you think of any other moment in history that's equivalent. People always found out about it after it took place. And with 9-11, we all watched it unfold live on television Mm -hmm. as it was happening because once that first plane hit, all the cameras were trained on the Twin Towers. So I remember, as as you guys have both noted, that second plane slicing through the second tower like a hot knife through butter. It just sliced right through. (laughs) And then watching the towers collapse, I mean, it was just unbelievable. You couldn't believe what you were seeing.
2: And there was something about the the visual, the image of the second plane hitting. I don't really know how to how to describe it.
0: I have chill. I just got things. chills on my neck it, when you it, 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 said it's, that.
2: It's one of it's one of those things as a as a writer, there are very few things that you that you feel like you can't accurately describe given enough times, but I don't I don't know that there's a way to accurately describe either the visual or the emotion that goes with the visual of seeing the the object just kind of it's like something that it, it's like something out of out of any, you know action movie sequence or something like that like you would see it in a Bruce Willis movie or something crazy except, except it was real and it happened so fast
0: It was unbelievable and and um seeing the horror on my parents faces you know i was in my early 20s i don't even know if i was 21 yet and seeing how scared they were scared the shit out of me because you look to your parents um for stability and for comfort and i remember them looking at me and saying nothing like this has ever happened before they they couldn't even shepherd me through it we were all going through it together
2: that 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 also so i think that's a good point that nothing Nothing like this has ever happened before, because I think, you know, if you if you live long enough, right, you'll see you'll see some stuff like that's just a truism about like if you if you're on earth long enough, you'll see some some things. But for the most part, history kind of repeats itself. So you can sort of put yourself in, you know, in whatever moment in history. And most of the stuff, like if you've read a history book or, or whatever, are things that are that are like not necessarily novel. And that was the first the first moment, I think in in my lifetime. Unfortunately, it wouldn't be the last because we we've then lived through. You know, we, Lord, we lived through a pandemic. A now lived through all all this other all this all these storming, other of, the storming <laughs> of the capital, storming of the Right, like so. where
0: you, where so, you called me and so, were like, "Are you watching this shit?"
2: <laughs> yeah, I th- right. I did call. It, like seriously, like really, like I got to talk to somebody right
3: now. Um, Meanwhile, my therapist I, wasn't available. I was taking a so, nap. Everyone was calling me, like, "Where are you I, in DC?" And I was like passed out. <laughs> right. Oh, word! There was insurrection. But yeah. That, right. This is the first time in my life that I had seen
2: something that there wasn't any context for. That there just there was just no context for, for anything that happened that day.
3: This was one of the first real news events that we communally experienced together in real time in a way that you know we talk about how now social media adds on and all these other, you know, but this was that moment where we're all watching the news, we're listening to the radio. We had no choice but to do that all in real time. And, and you just wonder to what extent that magnified, uh, being, not that it had to be magnified much given the terror of the day, but how much that magnified that communal and that shared experience. And all of us were watching the same things, listening to the same things, have these same shared uh, points of reference in a way that for a lot of other issues, we, we just might
0: and trying to figure out what the fuck was going on without Facebook, without Twitter, without Instagram, without YouTube, without text messaging. But without without
3: newspapers that even really had functional websites. Right. Like this right? Is, it wasn't even like you would go to CNN and really find out anything. Right. Like it. it <laughs>
0: Crazy to crazy to imagine a world pre all of those things, because now um, that's so integral to how we how we communicate and share info. Um, Well, of course, what followed uh, were two wars, including America's longest and most expensive war. So uh, we're now going to talk to two gentlemen who served um, in Iraq and Afghanistan.
3: Joining us now are Richard Brookshire, founder of the Black Veterans Project, an advocacy group tackling racial issues in the military. Richard is a former U.S. Army infantry combat medic and a veteran of the war in Afghanistan and Isaiah James also with the Black Veterans Project. He's an army veteran who served two tours in Iraq and one tour in Afghanistan. And he's also a congressional candidate in Central Brooklyn's 9th congressional district. We're really happy to have you guys uh, especially in our first show back. And, and I wanted to start, you know, because we're having this conversation around the anniversary, the 20th anniversary of 9/11 uh, at a time when the last combat troops have left Afghanistan. And so I wanted to start kind of at the beginning, uh, do you guys remember where you were on 9-11? What you were thinking, how old were you? What was going through your head at that moment? Um, and then afterwards, I, I wanna hear a little bit more about
1: how you got into the service. I was 14 years old. I was just starting the ninth grade. Um, and I remember sitting in class, I sat against the far wall in the second seat as soon as you walk in the door. And I remember the the towers coming on the TV and my teacher was just crying and stuff. And we were like, as kids, we didn't really understand the significance of it. I was at a charter
4: school taking a proctored exam because that's what they do at charter schools. And um, after the exam had completed, um, there was an announcement made and they turned on the television and I have family in New York and I I had a cousin that I knew worked in the financial district. So she was top of mind. My mom came and picked me up. Uh, She's a former Army vet as well when she immigrated from Haiti. Um, So she went straight to Sam's Club (laughs) to make sure we had water and canned food and like like the apocalypse was coming.
3: How did you both end up in the armed services? What were your motivations and what were your thoughts about the wars when
1: you signed up? Well, for me, it was uh, a little over three years. Like I said, 9-11 happened when I was a freshman. I joined because I was I was poor. I was really poor. Uh, we were homeless. You know, I'm one of 11 kids. Mother worked, father worked. It just, the system was rigged back then too. So I didn't join from some deep unabided sense of patriotism or to travel the world. You know, a little anecdote, I just visited my sister not too long ago and we were talking about some of the old friends we grew up with. These dudes are doing 27, 28, 30 years in prison dead and all that stuff, so I didn't have a choice. I wasn't mentally prepared to even go to school as an 18 year old kid from the hood. So the army for me wasn't a step up, it was a way out. So I joined to get literally out of my situation.
4: My experience was quite different. So um, though I come from a military family, my father uh, served from Vietnam all the way to the Gulf War, um, but he, we were estranged my entire life. I was the last person that anyone would think would join the army. I'd had a full ride to Morehouse, went for my freshman year, uh, had come out the closet not, you know, soon before that, um, kind of first generation college student. And so lost that scholarship um, and uh, went to school briefly in Florida. But I was so depressed at, at losing my scholarship at, at Morehouse that I, I ended up leaving after a semester at FAMU. Um, which I don't talk about because Morehouse is the only school that matters, (laughs) but (laughs) Um, but, um, and um, I interned for the Obama campaign. And when he won, it was a transformative moment for me because I was kind of at a bottom point, it felt like, um, and I needed to do something to help turn me into a man, um, get resources to be able to pay for school. But also, I felt a great divide between my father and I, we were still very much estranged. And and having not grown up with him, I was like, well, perhaps if I have a similar kind of experience, there would be a bridge for you know not only me just understanding you know him better, but perhaps you know even a bridge for our relationship. So I, I enlisted as a combat medic. And I, just an aside around that, um, I originally came in wanting to do psych ops. Um, I was qualified; I passed all the exams to be able to do it. But many Black vets end up getting sidelined into these service-oriented roles. Um, you know, passed up for like high-profile type of military um, type of military roles, and yeah, so I ended up uh, not being able to to get that because I was pushed and told that because I had a little bit of student loans from the time that I went to to FAMU um, that I wouldn't qualify for a security clearance. The first thing I got. After nine months in the military, after I was done with training, was a security clearance. So, you know, always, I always like to tell that story because even in the process of joining from the outset, uh, Black vets are often uh, sidelined and marginalized. How did you guys both
2: navigate this, this time that was fraught with this overwhelming sense of, of militaristic nationalism and patriotism that was very much in the post 9-11, in the days and months and years after post 9-11 was very much mixed in with racism and and tribalism and xenophobia and and anti-Islamic sentiment and and et cetera. How did you guys navigate being, you know, black bodies in this war, actually in the war on on the ground in that kind of
1: environment? As an 18-year-old kid from the hood, you don't think about any of that stuff. You just do what you're told and you try not to die. You don't understand that you're a black body from a poor neighborhood being sent across the world to kill brown bodies from poorer countries. You don't you don't look at it like that. You look at it just as do your duty, try to keep your head down, try not to get in trouble and try to move up in rank and get a little a ribbon and a, and a piece of metal on your chest. And I remember yeah. we were transported from intake to training in cattle trucks, literal trucks that they they move cattle in and i remember getting i remember getting off the back of the truck and i remember we got shark attacks so the drill sergeants run at you and they're yelling and screaming and all this stuff and the kid next to me was a black kid he was so scared he was peeing down his leg he was shaking and i remember this one drill sergeant had to be about five foot five white guy big nose had a 101st combat patch on his shoulder he came up to me i'm six foot eight i was six eight when i joined the army he came up to me and I remember this distinctly. He said, get your big black ass on your knees. You're not going to stand over me when you talk. So I had to get on my knees in the next man's urine, go to parade rest, which means put your hands behind your back. And every time I saw that drill sergeant throughout basic training, I had to get on my knees to talk to him. I'll never forget that.
0: I'm just curious because, you know, now, as I you're running for office. You're coming at this from a, a political perspective. You are a politician. It feels very much like, Initially, the mission was very clear, right? Somebody attacked us. It was the worst attack on U.S. soil in American history, and somebody had to pay. And it feels like along the way, the mission got more and more muddled. And at the end of the day, Our military spent 20 years in Afghanistan um, to the tune of more than $2 trillion, which comes to about $300 million a day, to quote the late great Tupac, they got money for war but can't feed the poor. So when you look at all of that, you add all that together, what was accomplished?
1: Not a goddamn thing. Nothing. Absolutely nothing. It was a complete waste of blood and treasure. Absolutely nothing was accomplished. If Al-Qaeda attacked us, we should have gone after Al-Qaeda which we did. But then, like you said, mission creep went into to nation building and spreading democracy and all these other things that we have seen has been fraught in every war we have fought. We tried it in Panama. We tried it in Grenada. We tried it in Vietnam. It does not work. It never works. But once we got so deeply mired into that conflict, there is no good way to to rip that Band-Aid off that bullet wound. Because Just sending more troops and more money and more bodies at it is keeping it at an even keel. You saw what happened as soon as we pulled out. So that was all being held back. That deluge was being held back by us throwing money and fresh bodies into the meat grinder. And the second we pulled it away, you saw what happened. So it it was all for not it was all a lie I, I was in afghanistan in maywan district in my tent the day they killed osama bin Laden. i was 60 miles away from the pakistani border i looked at my lieutenant and i said sir what the hell are we still doing here this was 2011 april i was like what are we still doing here we got the guy who we said did this we spent another 10 years after that there another trillion dollars after that there for what? Nothing was accomplished. The same as nothing was accomplished in Iraq. We have to understand that when they build prisons, they fill them with people. When our military budget goes up, you know, $30, $40 billion every year, we have to find an excuse to use it. So I hope folks understand that another war might be right around the corner.
4: I really think that the entire mission, you know, from its outset, the country had been looking for some kind of uh, conflict. We live and breathe a war economy in a way that our country does not want to admit, right? And so these were conduits to multinational organizations like Boeing, like pharmaceutical companies who reaped those trillions of dollars that you speak about. A lot of that money wasn't spent on the ground. It was spent on the ground perhaps to buy equipment for military contractors. Right. And these are the same individuals who are giving dollars to our politicians. Right. These multinational organizations are the reason we went to war. And if you want to talk about what we accomplished, they got very, 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 very rich.
3: As we've all watched the final withdrawal from Afghanistan, the images have certainly been heartbreaking and difficult. What emotions did these images invoke in you all? Right. You guys have a skin in the game. There, when I'm looking at that airport, I haven't been there. Um, I haven't, I haven't seen people who have served with uh, landing or, or, or heading back sometimes in, in pine boxes. Uh, having served in these conflicts, uh, does it kick up a motion for you all? For us to now be ending them?
4: I like to start with the story of like the day I arrived in Afghanistan. It was late at night, and we arrived on this airfield that had, you know basically blown up Soviet planes and a graveyard of Soviet vehicles on a former Soviet base. Like, okay, we're probably going to fail at whatever the hell this is. But in the meantime, I'm here. Right. So as far as the emotions are concerned, it was asked the other day, um, you know, what do you say to the families that lost um, individuals in this war? And I've lost both folks um, there and um, even quite a number more um, after they got back. And, I think about the, you know, 70,000, probably triple that, but that's the official numbers of, of Afghan lives that were lost. And why don't those lives matter as much? And I will tell you that um, I had been ignoring the news. I just have to protect my own psyche. Um, and then um, I couldn't escape it about like about two, three weeks ago when the news story about, you um, young afghan men clinging to the planes and falling from the sky and i think that's when um you know the emotions the human cost really kind of overwhelms you And, and i think for me i had to bifurcate myself which a lot of black folk understand a double consciousness but i think it's reinforced sometimes when you're in a in a war zone perhaps but maybe in some respects we're all in war zones you know what i mean um in different ways but um but yeah, I think for me, I like numb the fuck out of myself. I like I was numb and it took me I mean, I, I got back from Afghanistan a decade ago. It's taken me 10 years to just begin to unnumb myself, to feel right. And that feeling again brought me to the brink of a suicide attempt three years ago, that kind of just that processing over the course of the last few years of of uh, so much, but specifically that that experience that I had contributed such a significant part of my life to. Um, my f- most formative years of your 20s that kind of are catalysts to so much after the fact. You said that
2: you lost quite a few people in combat. Then you also said that you lost quite a few since then. And you talked about your own suicide attempt. So I'm assuming, correct me if I'm wrong, that the ones
4: you lost coming back were, to, were, were people who took their own lives? Yeah, took their own lives or died of drug overdoses, which in some respects is similar.
0: But Richard, you know, it, we are certainly proud of you. Um, I think all Americans would agree with that. And whether or not you went because you were patriotic or because, you know, as, as Isaiah said, it was his way out, you still went and you still served the country. Are you proud of your service?
4: Hmm. I wouldn't say that I'm not proud of my service. I feel like what I'm doing now is the actual service. My work through the Black Veterans Project is the actual service. I think about all those those homeless vets coming back from Vietnam, um, what they must have gone through with not even half of what I've been able to to gain access to because of my GI Bill, because of my access to the VA. Black veterans make up one third of the homeless veteran population. Right. Um, and half of Black vets live in poverty in some way. So it's like they're enduring quite a lot. I don't believe that the American public fully understands the ways in which that apparatus is raping the American people. When more than 50% of discretionary funding goes to the military, what does that mean for education, for feeding the poor, for housing, for infrastructure, for all the things that they keep saying that we can't afford, right? Um, I'm not proud of that. I don't think that's a good reflection of, uh, of what the best of this country can be. Well, yeah, your people are proud that you served and, you know, you made the sacrifice. But I'm like, yo, I live on, near Flatbush and Martins and there's a war out here for so, so many. Right. Um, and I'm proud of them for surviving that. I want to ask you both what your impression was of the Afghan
3: people while you were there. Right. This is like, you know, that's a voice that we don't always hear as much
1: in this conversation, but you all were there on the ground interacting with folks. I would always take a, a shining to the little children. I'm talking to three, four, five-year-olds. They would always run up to me. Like I said, I'm six foot eight. I'm decked out in all this gear, you know, bombs and, and smoke grenades and everything all on me. And they would always, you know, run up to me, Mr. Mr. And they would ask for my pens that we used to keep in our sleeve or pencil or candy. And I would always think like, these are just like little children in America. They're just like little children all over the world. And the older people, they were so nice. And they were they were you know always offering us chai tea and bread. And the younger men didn't like us, but I understood why they didn't like us. If somebody came to my country for 20 years, I would probably pick up arms and try to fight them as well. So I had no ill will towards the people of Afghanistan nor the people of Iraq. I did not hate them one bit. I was programmed to see them as the enemy, but I something in me could not let me see that. Now, if they're shooting at me and I'm shooting back at them, best believe one of us is going home and it's going to be me. You know what I mean? But I don't hate you one bit. So the people are just as warm and generous as people all over the world who have no you know, ill will towards you. But it, it wasn't... They, decisions were made at a level... That wouldn't wouldn't let the American people believe that they would think they would have you think that this is a bloodthirsty country of of millions of people who just want to kill Americans and destroy our way of life. But that was absolutely not the case,
0: Richard. What led you to form uh, the Black Veterans Project? Can you tell us about the work that you guys are doing?
1: Yeah, Black
4: Veterans Project, man. I mean, I founded it two or three weeks after I got out of the psych ward after my suicide attempt. I mean, I'd always wanted to work in the realm of civil rights and was trying to find my way after the military, had a really difficult transition, just trying to figure out where to fit in. I think on paper, everybody was like, yo, you've done so well, you went to school, you got a graduate degree, you just got out the military and life is good. And to me, it was just like, I joined at the rise of Obama and got out during the rise of Trump. It was such a whiplash for a young man um, who had just come back from service that I just could not reconcile and everything felt impossible and hopeless. Um, and I think in, in, in moving through um, my transition and especially after I survived, um, I started to interface with the community because when I got out, I couldn't wait to run as far away from anything related to the military as possible. I was like, don't I don't want to see no military fatigues. I don't want to see a hat. I don't want no pen. I just I want to be gone. Um, and, but I went to a, a, an event um, for unemployed veterans that the state of New York was putting on. And I noticed um, that first of all, all the jobs were like, come fix this bike. Like they weren't anything like substantial, but they were jobs, right? Um, but the majority of the room was black. Uh, about half of the room had raised their hand when they talk about having experienced homelessness. Um, a quarter or more had raised their hand about being formally incarcerated, and to me, I was like, "There's something here uh, that I need to explore more." And so, over the course of the last three years, um, you know, we built, we've become the main. Um, a black veterans organization that interfaces with the media and places, stories and sources information um, around all host of issues related to racial justice, both in the military, across the military academies um, and with respect to veterans. Um, the work I'm most proud of is what we've done in the last year. So we built a formidable relationship with Yale Law School. They have a veterans legal clinic um, out, of, out of Yale. And um, uh, there's an organization called NVCLR. Um, that's run by two older black vets, one of whom fought for 45 years to get his benefits. And we partnered together um, and we delivered the largest race-based data query that the Department of Veteran Affairs had ever received, um, wanting to study um, explicitly uh, the data that they had around benefit allocation um, and disability claim allocation. we talked about spending $2 trillion in Afghanistan they about two, $3 trillion missing from the black community because there's been a purposeful um, negligence um, and a, an intentional obstruction um, of black vets being able to get the disability claims that they deserve, um, but also having access to the uh, veterans benefits that they've long earned and, and, and deserve. I'm excited about what's to come.
0: Well, you, um, you definitely are doing really important work. Um, I hope when you're ready to share um, that reckoning and the information that you just teased, um, you know, you just threw raw meat into a group of journalists. We appreciate that. I hope you'll come back here and tell us what that's all about. Um, and if people want to donate, because now you can raise money as a 501C3, uh, right? So they can go to that. You can get your tax tax work. deductible. <laughs> <laughs> so people can uh, can check you out online. Thank you guys both so much for your time. Um, you really are doing such yes. important work and yes. your voices are are much needed right now, especially around this anniversary.
4: Yeah. Thanks for having us. Thanks exactly. for having
1: us. Exactly.
2: Thanks very much to Richard and Isaiah for joining us. You can learn more about the Black Veterans Project at blackveteransproject.org. And please don't forget to check us out on Twitter and on Instagram, at runtellthis
0: Hey, don't forget to subscribe and please leave us a five-star review. And the conversation continues on social media. Please follow us on Twitter and Instagram at runtellthis Check out new episodes every Wednesday. Run tell This is an independent production of Mara Scampo, Inc.